The beautiful thing about The Wire is that you never knew what was coming next. No one sat down and, and said, this is going to happen. You know, you just got one episode at a time and, and you told the story that was in front of you. And that was, you know, that's actually my preferred way to work. Hello, I'm Dave. And I'm Kobe. And this is The Wire Strip, the show where we watch The Wire episode by episode. And you don't just hear our voices, you hear from some of the cast, some of the crew, and we also hear from you guys as well. This week we are watching episode two of season three. It's called All Due Respect. And here's the chat that me and Kobe had many years ago, it seems, <laughs> in what was a pre-2020 world. Ah, oh, beautiful times. <laughs> when you walk through the garden, you gotta watch your back. Well, I beg your pardon. Walk the straight and narrow track. When you walk with Jesus, He's gonna save your soul. Just gotta keep the devil way down in the hole. He got the fire and the fury. Right, Kobe, here we are at, yep. our, at our own wire stripped off site. Absolutely. Yeah, we came indoors because it was too cold. Yeah, it's too cold at the moment. We need to keep warm. Um, we can't do this cold. So we've got a board up here. We'll just set the scene a little bit. We've got our we've got our board with all the relevant uh, pictures of of our targets. Yep. Um, all the characters. <laughs> uh, no, we don't. We're not that organised. No. We- <laughs> We're making this up, guys. <laughs> but we are inside because it's quite cold. That's the, yes. that's the story. That, that is the only true bit yeah. <laughs> of what we're saying here. Uh, let's talk season three, episode two. Yeah, all due respect. All due respect. So the previous episode was a bit of exposition. I thought a lot of stuff happened, but it's kind of really cragging into gear. and Table na- setting. Yeah, exactly. And now we're starting to see a bit of the flow and the, of the theme and the theme of season three. Which, I guess we start with the guys, the detail, the people we know the most. The guys in the major crimes units. Yeah, so they've uh, they've come off the, the disappointment of uh, not getting their, their idiot uh, promoted to <laughs> lieutenant. So they're, at, they're, they're kind of at a loss, aren't they? they, don't, they they're, their case is a bit stuck yep. until they get lucky uh, and hear Cheese seemingly confessing to a murderer on the wire. Yes. Um, they hadn't even heard his voice before. No. no, and then suddenly it's like this: this the heavens have opened, and they've been offered this <laughs> this manner from heaven. It's too, it's almost too perfect, though. Oh, would you believe? So, do you want to set the scene? Uh, how we got to this point? So we, I mean, taking a step aside from the MCU, the, ma- the major crimes unit, not Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> Cheese and his and his mates and his fellow hoodlums, um, hoodlums, do, uh, hoodlums. <laughs> <laughs> they undergo. Um, an underground kind of dog fighting ring. Cheese takes his dog along. Long story short, his dog loses. Cheese is disappointed that his dog loses and thinks, fuck you, I'm going to shoot you. And then he's disappointed. And you hear this conversation. Cheese is talking about this conversation about, hey man, I shot my dog. He's like, I t- I'm, I'm losing sleep over it. And everyone in the detail hears him talk about dog and thinks he's talking about some guy he knows. Yeah. And they think he's confessing to a murder of a human being and they're all guns blazing and think, right, we've got, we've got probable cause now to, to like get cheese and bring him in. 
but thing was they they you know they were close to the truth because yeah. there were quite a few murders because of this Bec- exactly as in retribution murders because the guy that won essentially cheated yeah. as uh, cheese's friend points out uh, he he must have put some uh, chloroform on the back of the dog or yeah, something yeah to make the dog a bit dopey or something like that so they were close to the truth, but the cheese's confession is no good as they as they sort of slowly find <laughs> out in the interrogation room. Uh, I think it's so like it's such a great scene when mm. Bunk just starts replaying his own words back to him and Cheese kind of breaks down because <laughs> he's so upset about the loss of his dog. Because it's so interesting because Cheese holds fast. He gets these, they, they lay out these four pictures of dead people. Cheese does not look fussed in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But then when Bunk mimics like um cheese's breakdown about his him shooting his dog cheese visibly breaks down yeah and starts crying props to method man who yeah. plays cheese because he, he's great in this scene it's like man you some cold cold ass bastards <laughs> and another way and another way you see that playing out you have all like um daniels and perlman and other people outside looking inside the ter- interrogation room and they see they can't hear what's going on but they just see cheese breaking and then and they all think wow we've we've got him yeah, and they even, done. Rawls even says, like, great job. Yeah. You know, as, and, and then, then they all walk away just before <laughs> the, the crucial moment. And then you're like, oh, no. And you just want you just want things to go well for Daniels. And then yeah. it is not going well. No. <laughs> Who's your dog? <laughs> oh, hell no. Y'all ain't laying no bodies on me, man. Lawyer time. Oh, he was my dog, man. I ain't sleep since I capped his ass, looking up at me all bloody as shit. He had much love for me. Even then, I ain't never gonna find another. <laughs> man, y'all some cold ass motherfuckers, man. Got you on tape. So what happened, jeez? I thought he punked me, all right? So I did what I had to do. Which was? Lit him up. Method is very, very dear to me. He also has a a wonderful part on the deuce. This is The Wire's legendary casting director, Alexa Fogel. He auditioned for The Wire for that part a couple times. And he's always prepared. He's always on time. He takes it really seriously. And the thing is, if you've, re- if you've reached the top of your game in one form of performing, there is always a possibility that you're good at another kind of performing if you set your mind to it. It doesn't always work out, but I'm open to that. The great thing about method auditioning is that as soon as he got on the show, every rapper's rep was calling me saying they wanted to be on the wire. And... My response could always be, well, when I have the right thing, they're welcome to audition. Well, the secondary plot here is is McNulty, who's taken it on his own behest to follow up D'Angelo's death. And this is one reason why so many people love McNulty, because to everyone within The Wire, he's an asshole. He's a dickhead, whichever way you want to, you want to play it. But to people watching, he's like, yes, finally someone is going to come and try and avenge D'Angelo's death. Because it was whoever investigated it made a complete mockery of it, and when he died, and they tried to make play it for suicide, 
in season two, I just thought, how can they, how can anyone believe that was a suicide? Because yeah. you can't hang yourself from less than your body height. It's, it's difficult. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good point. And it, I guess it just shows the laziness of the system mm. uh, or that these things can just happen and get, people get away with them. But uh, McNulty is a, you know, he's a renegade and he questions things. Uh, but again, it is f- sort of for his own yeah, that's it. purpose. He's got an... He's not a, altruistic in this point, is he? No, he's he wants to take Stringer down. Yeah. It's not out of a sort of a, a love for D'Angelo or search for justice as such. He's just looking... He's kind of is like a dog with a bone and mm. he does want the truth, but it's for his own ends. Yeah. And then we get this, uh, as part of this, we get a scene of him... Um, uh, visiting Danette, yeah. um, D'Angelo's former girl and, and son. Uh, again, trying to sort of just squirrel away some information from her, but he gets nothing. I thought he was a bit, bit weird. He was a bit forward in this scene where he picks up her son yeah, I mean, and puts the, him on her knee. Dude, on his like, knee. Stay away from him. Yeah, that's massively inappropriate. Yeah. I was with Danette. Like, put, put my son <laughs> put him down. down, you complete stranger, <laughs> and get out of my house. As a sideline, it's not really part of the major kind of crimes plot, but we have... Cheryl and Kima's baby's been born um, and Kima is nonplussed yeah. in any way, shape or form. And we see the start of Kima kind of turning in more and more like McNulty. Um, and it's, it's saddening there because Cheryl's there with, with their baby, which is her real baby in real life. Uh, yes. And she's there sat on sat on her, on her chest and Kima's nonplussed and it's it's kind of heartbreaking. It is, that. and Kima doesn't come across well here. No, um, certainly we. Th- there's a literal chasm has like a, well, not a literal chasm, but <laughs> a metaphorical chasm has opened up between the two of them. But to the point where like Kima is so bad at being a parent, that mm. she, you know, the, her small talk is about how's the fontanelle, you know, the, what? just the soft part of a baby's head that closes. Is that what it is? Okay, just yeah. Um, but just like awful, awful thing to say or bring up or, I mean, it's like just the worst possible. You, you get the impression that Kima rarely holds the baby. Yeah. No, just zero interest. Yeah. Um, but I guess, you know, this is the, this is these, again, these seeds were sown very early with Kima showed very little interest when, when Cheryl was pregnant in season two. So, I mean, it's the, you know, the writing's on the wall here for really for these two. I was actually pregnant. Yeah, I was actually pregnant. And and the the great thing is is that they 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 were sort of going back and forth because in the in the story it it wasn't we hadn't decided who was going to actually have the child, bear the child. We were joined across the airwaves by Melanie Nichols King, who is Cheryl in the wire. And the writers were going back and forth as to which it which it you know, which it was going to be and then when I finally you know, said to them, well, you know, I'm actually pregnant. And they were like, oh my God, you just made our choice that much easier. <laughs> it's like, it's going to be Cheryl. <laughs> you know, so it was perfect. All right, let's check in with Hark and Carve over at the Western District. And uh, we get some fun stuff here with them and um, Bodie and Poot. Yeah. Who, anytime these four sort of bounce off each other, it always makes for... Uh, yeah, you, can, you think they are... It's almost like... Colleagues, but from different from different rival firms or firms that they you know they meet each other yeah. once every month and they know each other well enough. Maybe they would have a drink with each other, or play pool, friendly banter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they talk shop. Yeah, let's just have a yeah. let's see where should we get Bodin Poot over and see let's have, <laughs> let's have a dinner with the misses. And you get this. There's a such a lovely little scene here of 
Herc and Carve going to the cinema with their girlfriends. Yes. And Bodie and Poot come out with their girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> and you get, it was Poot just cannot believe. Y'all go to the movie? <laughs> <laughs> so you watch films? You, you have a life? What's going on? And then uh, uh, Poot and, Poot and Bodie ten, telling their girlfriends, right, these are the guys who try and arrest us all the time. Yeah. Uh, we have all the fun, but yeah, they can't hold us because they're, they're basically, they've got nothing. And Herc and Carve, they've got nothing to say to that. They're really yeah. Well, well, I mean, the the power balance has shifted. Absolutely, you know, yeah. Out of, out on the out, out of context, the street, yeah. they kind they kind of have the upper hand always, um, and now now it's just completely equal footing. It's neutral territory, <laughs> and they don't know what to do. So Putin car, Putin body lean right into that. Uh, but I think it's such a lovely scene because it's it's very funny, obviously. Yeah. But it just you know it's a reminder that. They they're they're all neighbors. They're mm. all this is they they live in Baltimore City. They're all you know, they're all from the same area, uh, the west side. Um and they go to the same movie theater. They go to the same movie theater and it's and it's not maybe not circumstance, but choices they made earlier on in their life dictate where they've ended up. Yeah. Well it's probably a bit of circumstance and yeah. choices and you know, but it's like it's you know, it's it's luck of the draw, you know. It's who but knows you have, where you're gonna be born and you have the conversation where in season one where where Bunk chatted with Omar, they went to the same school. Yes, Do you yes, know what I mean? exactly. So it's choices that they made or maybe the parents had behind them that set them on a different track that they were going down. There's no reason why Omar couldn't be a police officer had he had the right kind of um, treatment. So they, these people literally are in the same neighbourhoods as yeah. each other. They're uh, neighbours. Yeah. These divisions are imagined, Yeah, right? It's the construct of society that we've, basically built up built up around us they are imaginary walls these kind of scenes always just sort of bring that home for me uh and and to again it's the wire at its best because it delivers a very important message with like levity uh (laughs) and it's just it's just a joy i mean here also the third police officer you have is dozerman um I think he made a brief appearance in episode one but this is where we we first hear of him speak i think and he's at the he's at the cinema with uh, Herc and Carver. Um, he misses all the head-to-head with Carver and Poots, uh, with Bodie and Poots, I should say. But then we have another kind of sting operation going on. It's a it's a late-night hand-to-hand, and Dozeman is sent undercover to buy some drugs and then, you know, arrest the guys that, that sell the drugs. But that goes wrong in the same way that, well, did for Kima. Mm. Well, maybe not the same way, but it goes wrong. Dozeman gets shot, and... The upside is, you know, he's he's fighting for his life, but he he turns up to be quite stable. And this is where you see the real life danger that these police are facing on a day to day basis. And that brings Bunny into the mix. He yep. gets gets the late night phone call, and they, again, I get we we get to see Bunny in action. Uh, you know, he is a good leader, mm-hmm. um, and he he stands outside the district with with the guys having a beer, delivering the the news that he's going to be okay. Um, and we see more of the frustration from Bunny. Uh, we get a scene uh, where Bunny, after the after this, is kind of a bit lost uh, and looking for advice. So he goes to a character, a new character called the Deacon. Yes. Um, who, you know, a lot of our fa- listeners probably already know this, but he is played by a guy called Melvin Williams, mm-hmm. who has now passed away, but uh, was the original inspiration for Avon Barksdale, yeah, real yeah. life head of a criminal enterprise, who was the subject of the wiretap that uh, Ed Burns ran 
when David Simon was in his police force. Exactly. Yeah. So this li- literally is the a- the real life Avon yeah. Baxter. When I first learned that, I kind of lost my shit. <laughs> it's quite something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's brilliant. It, Melvin Williams or the Deacon is a, such an ace character and is the kind of, he's like the good angel on your shoulder um, in a lot of the wires as it goes forward. He's like the voice of reason for, for a lot of these people. Yeah. And then you kind of think back, it's like, but he's probably killed a few people himself or ordered many deaths. And... And I just, I don't know how he died. Um, I think it was illness or something like that. But I just hope that he kind of felt that he had stepped away from, from crime, hopefully. Um, well, I mean, it's it's an interesting topic about, you know, how do you feel about the show bringing in real life drug dealers yeah. uh, to play roles? Because that, that does happen more and more. Yeah. How does yeah. that make you feel? It made me feel... It was good that initially I thought, oh, that's cool. That's the guy. that was that was Barksdale, so he's in, he's in the show now. But then when you think that actually, if he's if he's been the source of lots of murder and lots of drug crime, what's he actually doing out of prison in the first place? Because he's, if all things are, if I understood everything, he's you know he's killed, he's got a few bodies on him, and he was only just out before yeah. he appeared. I think the year before. Um, so I think it's it's a dark it's a dark thing to do. A very I don't know super brave of of the show producers to do. But maybe it's part of the rehabilitation. Maybe they wanted to say to show that they can turn around and and make their lives better. Well, and yeah, exactly. And I think you know, and it's it's part of this whole thing, isn't it? There is there is no black and white. Certainly, no. certainly you. I don't think this 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 is the show justifying the terrible things that he was partly responsible. No, not for. at all. But do you believe in rehabilitation and should we believe in that? And do you, you know, do you allow people a second chance? And also that's not every aspect of somebody's character. So it is very much grey. And uh, I did read, you know, David Simon tweeted when he died that he was the man who made him look at the drug war differently. Uh, So he certainly was, you know, an intelligent character. He was also, you know, he was two things, Melvin Williams. He was the head of a criminal enterprise, but he was also a leader in the community, very much like the Deacon and did a lot of good in that regard. So it's, yeah, certainly there are no easy answers. We're not going to... Posit one fully, yeah. No, we're not going to tell you the right or wrong here, but it's it's certainly an interesting discussion point. And and we'd be interested to hear all of your opinions on this. Yeah, please do. Please uh, send us emails to burner at thewirestrip.com or all our social media at thewirestrips and we'll, we'll share them with everyone um, as they come out. He was a gentleman. Um, he was, uh, you know, a lifer in, in, in his world. We asked Robert Wisdom, who plays Bunny, to tell us about the time he spent with Melvin Williams. And he was, but he was a man of integrity and he would take me to, we just... We'd, we'd go around to his favorite little restaurants, not little restaurants, his, all his favorite places. Um, and he'd tell me stories, man. He filled my cup uh, with, with, uh, with Baltimore stuff. You know, he was in a unique place because he was, you know, he, he worked. Um, he was a hustler, you know, and a real-life hustler in that world. But he hustled... Uh, with a style. I mean, we would go play pool and he was, a, he loved playing, he was sharp as the tack playing pool. Um, then we go have lunch and he just filled in all the blanks. So Ed, he was a former cop, I believe, right? This is the voice of Johnny Weeks played by Leo Fitzpatrick. So he did this great thing, or I've seen him do this thing where he would invite 
Ed was kind of old. He was probably like in his 50s, maybe. And he would invite these people he locked up down to set to be on the show. And they would be like old pals and just saying, well, you know, I was just doing a job. And, well, I was just doing a job. And the old timers, the street guys, would tell the young kids to not mess with Ed because he's an all right guy. Like he had a certain respect on the street, even though he came from being a crime police, whatever. Um, he was still friendly with these guys. And then David just kind of, he just sort of knew all the ins and outs. And, you know, that comes from being a reporter. It's just kind of knowing all the details. It was weird. Like you would imagine there would be more problems or conflicts. And maybe there were when I wasn't around. But outside of the occasional sort of bad feeling of, hey, we're being watched um, and I can't tell where it's from, we never really felt that threatened. I guess the the big thing that I was going to say about Bunny Colvin was the the paper bag speech. Oh, um, magic! This is how the, this this is how this episode ends. Bunny Colvin is briefing the men about how initially about how Dozerman is saying he's going to be fine. Hopefully, he'll be on his feet as soon as possible. No more hand to hands because guys, I don't think they achieve anything. And then he starts talking about needing a way. Um, it calls it like a, a civil compromise or civic compromise because this the previous civic compromise was when prohibition happened or they banned the drinking of street uh, alcohol on the streets. The police had to spend their time arresting people who were sitting on the street drinking their beer or whatever. And that's a waste of police time. It's a waste of everyone getting arrested. Then someone created, someone put the beer into a paper bag and suddenly that whole problem disappeared and the police could get on with their street work, their normal work as it should do. And Bunny is talking about, we need this kind of thing for drugs because Dozeman was shot for three vials. I don't know what three vials means, but I, I get the impression it doesn't mean much at all. Um, I'm not sure how that equates to a spider bag either. No. <laughs> <laughs> how many vials is in a spider bag? <laughs> I'd say eight. <laughs> um, but yeah, Bunny's just amazing in, in this scene. Or the idea that Bunny's formulating is like, we need a paper bag for drugs. Um, Herc doesn't get it. Herc has no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh? But this is brilliant. This is like inspirational, isn't mm. it? Like it's Bunny Colvin is a, is a great leader and a great speech maker because the the best, you know, the most influential um, people throughout history and people who've made speeches that have changed the world, Martin Luther King, for instance, are always selling like an idea. You have to sell an idea in a, in a sort of its simplest and purest form, mm. and to illustrate that in a way that's completely understandable people can hook onto yeah Yeah, as in i I had a dream here's my dream and this you know you help people to picture a thing so bunny's such a it's such a genius little visual cue the the brown paper bag we don't what's the line we didn't we don't have a brown paper bag for drugs and it's as simple as that uh it's allowing this thing to happen so that we can all willingly ignore it and get on with the stuff that with the real work yeah yeah which is so genius. That was based on a, on a real on, on a real moment, actually. Come on, you know whose voice this is. For those of you that don't, this is Clark Peters. You know, um, I think it was Stokes who wanted, who had considered doing this, so that at least if it was in the open, you'd be able to see, you'd be able to have better control, and the crime rate would go down, um, which it did theoretically in the um, in, in the in the. Um, in the series. My name is David Nutt. I'm a psychiatrist 
I'm a neuropsychopharmacologist, which means I study the effects of drugs on the brain. Uh, I like to say I've probably given more different kinds of drugs to human beings than anyone alive. I can't think of a class of drug I haven't actually administered to a human being to find out what they do in the brain. And because of that, I was the government's chief drugs advisor for a few years until I was sacked for challenging the fact that the government government policy is actually not based on evidence, but politics. Every country in the world, possibly with the possible exception of North Korea, has signed up to the UN conventions on drugs. And they are driven by American philosophy, American politics. And they're pretty much wrong across the board. The, the, the UN conventions are wrong because they basically say that drug use is wrong. But alcohol use is okay. And tobacco use is okay. So firstly, they make this arbitrary distinction between some drugs and other drugs, which is scientifically rubbish. The second thing is that they then go even further, which is my own particular bugbear. They say that that uh, drugs which are illegal, by and large, have no medical value. So they put them in what's called Schedule 1 or Schedule 4 of the UN Conventions, which means that it's, they're virtually impossible to research. So take a drug like magic mushrooms, psilocybin, you know, potentially very safe use for centuries. Now gets put into Schedule 1, which means it's virtually impossible for anyone to work with it. So you can't prove that it's got medical value. So people say, look, there's no research showing it has medical value, so keep it in Schedule 1. But of course, if you can't research, <laughs> you can't research it, you can't prove they're wrong. So it becomes self-fulfilling. And this has been, I think it's the worst censorship of research in the history of the world. It's a terrible Catch-22 scenario, and it's deliberate, I believe. I believe that not only do they be does the UN and all the other governments that sign up to the, to the conventions actually believe that these drugs don't have value, but they don't want them to have value, because if it turned out they did have value, as, it, as we're discovering ourselves now, they would be proved wrong, and all the people that could have su survived, the people that could have benefited from these drugs, would then start complaining. So they'd actually much rather that we didn't talk about it than we actually proved them wrong. There was a, a mayor of Baltimore who actually came up with that smoke. And, uh, and he, so that was kind of a, a legend, but, you know, you never think it through, you know, like what that actually means. So when they laid out the ham-fisted way that we came up with this and how we tried to make it happen, you know, all because we just, you know, old people couldn't walk down the street no more. You know, uh, the streets have just been cannibalized. And, you know, that, that night when Bunny does a ride through the hood after he leaves the precinct, does a ride through, and the young kid doesn't even recognize him as a cop, you know. I mean, that's when the penny dropped, you know, for me when, when, uh, when because that kid was so real. You know, he's a grown man now, but, you know, at the time he was, he was so real. And that look in his face, like, and I've seen that look. I've seen those faces, you know, growing up in D.C. And I realized this was kind of microscopic, what they, that moment, what they presented with. I didn't, and I didn't get that moment at first. When we were playing it, um, you know, I had my hat on the, uh, on the dashboard. And, uh, and David wanted me to, 
to, you know, take it and put it on. And I was kind of resisting. I was like, you know, I was playing it more as my own native awareness, you know, of a, a man-to-man thing. But David said, no, put the, put the cap on, put the cap on. And that sealed the whole thing, man. It was just like the look on the kid's face changed everything, you know, when he realized. And they and they, then they shouted him out about it, you know. But um, that it's that kind of stuff. And then, you know, just the montage that they put up after that. Uh, that's the penny that I, I recall, you know. That's when I, I saw... Uh, I saw this in every American city. Well, the main, I guess, if you head back to the drug side of things, which is, you know, the Barksdale crew, one key point in this episode is that we see Omar coming back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> dressed up to, dressed up as a sort of a, a, a veteran. war veteran. Oh, yeah. my God. I, I, how did you feel about this? I thought they are having fun, but also really yeah <laughs> did not land for me this is and this is the cold open for this episode yeah and i just okay firstly it's clearly omar from the off yeah right i mean it's just a terrible disguise well whether it's clearly omar or not how does he how does that guy twig that's omar because he doesn't do anything different but by the time he's lifted him up like a flight of stairs so he could see his face all the points all the way through <laughs> yeah and then he puts him down and he's like wait a minute <laughs> Aren't you? <laughs> By which time Omar's got his Do gun off him. He's like, yeah, I'm Omar. Gotcha. Um, so that's the bit I found hard to swallow. Maybe, you know, if there's some kind of heist thing and he, you know, they could have figured a different way around it, but the... I didn't feel good about this scene at sure. all. Sure. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll buy it if it's Bubbles and Johnny Week. Sure. Because they're, you know, there's a desperation that fuels their hijinks. But this is like, why is Omar doing this? Omar is like, Omar can, he literally walks around like neighborhoods holding a shotgun not caring if who 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 knows where he is or who he is he doesn't need to do this no. i mean it's it's just like it's just so like beneath him i felt and silly it was just like i felt watching this like you know the like in murder oh, she on. wrote when jessica fletcher used to used to dress up as a character and put on a southern accent it's just just, just really really embarrassing um so yeah, so and it and it took me out. It just felt like the wire is better than this, and the wire does the wire does comedy better than this as well. I think we've seen that all, so many better examples of comedy in in the the first two episodes alone of this season. So yeah, yeah so total fail for me. Oh, that's a shame. I mean, I I, I get, I do get it. <laughs> so what's good? Thank you, young man. Oh shit! Oh shit! Nah, nah, nah. Hey, yo, Omar. Yo, all due respect, but this right here is a Barksdale joint, man. Do tell. As part of Stringer's kind of franchising idea, he sends out Bodie to Bodie and other people to get some to claim some space to find some franchisees. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, one person he wants is uh, I'm not sure if Stringer says we need Marlow or it's Bodie's idea, but he says find Marlow. Yeah. He's someone who who um, you know we could sell our products. He seems like a, is a is a smart guy. Seems like a nice guy. Yeah. Exactly. 
Um, Don't get in, but uh, Moller's nowhere to be seen. So Bodhi just kind of sets up shop opposite from their main kind of stoop, their main corner and direct competition. And, you know, obviously Marlow and his second in the command, Fruit. It's pretty tense. Yeah, sees it as a, you know, a confrontation point. It's interesting because Stringer's basically turned his workforce into like salespeople. He has them, that's it. That's exactly it. And it's not like, it's not a skin that Bodhi's wearing comfortably. No. Like he doesn't know, like, is Marlo in? <laughs> is Marlo in? And it speaks to the most gormless person, Marlo. Yeah. Oh, he was here, but now, now he ain't. <laughs> I know, it's just like... Uh, which one is it? Going up against a wall. <laughs> but it does feel like, he, they're, like he's, they're, they're, they're one step away from like cold calling people. They are, yeah. Being like, hello, I'm coming to you today from the uh, Avon Barksdale organization. We've got a great offer today. On- <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go to the next one of my yellow pages list under drug dealers. <laughs> uh, under corner boys. Uh, yeah, so I mean, we're not sure where this is going at the moment, but it's, it's, it's kind of something that's happening in the background. Yeah. And also, I guess, in the bar sale drugs kind of way, we, we see a bit more of Cutty. Last episode, we didn't actually talk about it, but Cutty, um, as a leaving prison present, was given a hell of, was given a load of drugs to sell. How do you feel about that? Um, I don't know, come back to what you know, I guess, isn't it? Yeah, but that's such a such a balls as like a <laughs> as a gift. Like, just give them money. You've got so much money. Just like, what do you... It's like, it's like giving someone... All right, do you know what? It's like giving someone like as a, oh, you know, congratulations on your anniversary. Here's a jumper that I got that I don't want, but here's the receipt. So you can also go back and just take it back and get something else you want. Yeah, take it back to John Lewis and buy yeah. something else. Okay, here's a gift receipt. It's like, what if, it's just like why, why do that? Why does it just make it such a... Or unless it's on purpose to try and in, like integrate him back into the criminal. I think there must be some part of it. It yeah. must be like, let's see how he fares. Let's see what kind of side he's on. You know, if he's still in the game fully, he'll know what to do with the drugs. He'll know how to sell them and he'll make money from it. I mean, Cutty's first reaction to it when he saw it was like, Jesus. And then he kind of looks both ways, picks it up and walks off. Yeah. And then he gives it to Fruit. Fruit kind of... Shafts him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but now we see Cutty now is kind of reeling from that. He's, he's, he hasn't made any money from, from the drugs. And he talks with his parole officer who says, yeah, get a job, man. <laughs> so sad how useless the, the parole officer was. Oh, such a dick, yeah. I can't um, help you, but uh, get some money. Get did a, you feel get a job. so at the end of the at the end of that first episode with Cutty where, mm. you know, he's been shafted by fruit and there's a sort of there's a you know, we we've been told that um Cutty is this like real badass soldier. Enforcer, yeah. Real force of nature. Did you feel like repercussions were coming? I thought something was coming yeah. and maybe they will do. I think, well, certainly we don't get it in this episode and it sets, you know, it sets it up very nicely and shows us maybe that Cuddy has changed yeah. and that he, he's not. Like, we, traditionally we would have probably in any other show expected the episode after that to see him putting a plan together or just like beating the guy or yeah. something. Yeah. No, he's just like, he's walked away from that and he's gone to get a job. And also what I thought was very telling is when the gun was pulled on Cuddy, he didn't flinch. Yeah. He just stood there. Compared to Johnny Weeks having a gun pulled on him, Johnny Weeks has maybe pissed his pants. You don't know, but he, no, he didn't have any pants. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> but he was Johnny Weeks is visibly like shitting himself. Yeah. Um, whereas Cutty was just like, oh, you got a gun on me, okay, okay, you're that serious about it? I'll just walk off then. And that was that to me seemed like what Cutty was just he just resigned himself to. Okay, fine, I'll I'll sod off then. Um, which kind of gives you an idea of, about Cutty's character as well. I think which is it, says, it says a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he's taken up a job and um, 
he's a gardening laborer with a load of a load of Latino immigrants. Yeah. Um, doesn't tell you much, but just Cutty plodding along at a moment. It's just good. It's just good, honest work. I yeah. mean, I like this. I love every scene with Cutty. And I don't think anyone else who has tried to leave prison has tried to do anything even slightly honest um, off the bat. So again, that does lean into his kind of character. Yeah. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. My name is Lee, and my Twitter handle is at Lee Hasdell. Uh, you asked for our opinions on where each season ranks, so mine goes from best to worst. Four, three, two, one, five. Season three is is a close second. Um, it was hard for me to choose between that one and the second season for that number two spot, but I think it just beats it. Um, my reasoning for that is I just feel like it has the best of everything in it. Um, Benny Colvin's story in Amsterdam. The introduction to the politics and Carchetti, um, Cutty and Slim Charles, two of my favourite characters are introduced. And just the dynamic between Avon and Stringer is incredible in this season. Um, I think my main reason though is because I think it's just when the detailed surveillance is at its best with The Wire. Um, and especially with the burn the phones later on and how they tackle that. Um, I think though most importantly for me is that it just tees up the show perfectly for season four, which is still the greatest bit of television of all time um i absolutely love the podcast um started listening recently and binged all of it before season three started so yeah keep it up thanks and thank you for that message that was sent to us on our burner phone because we have a burner phone like any good corner boys uh, yeah. and if and if you want to talk to us and leave a message then how do they do it Kobe? you tell them the easiest ways to find the details to submit to the burner by coming to our social media we are at the wire stripped on instagram and twitter and also you can find us in a couple of places on facebook just search the wire stripped and you can get all the details for submitting a burner message there yeah and the easiest thing to do is uh, send a voice note in in whatsapp uh, but if you don't want to do all the phone stuff you can also just email us uh, a voice note to burner at the wirestripped.com yeah absolutely and this week we want to hear from you we want to know who's your favorite character in season three of the wire Thank you very much, guys, for the burn. I'm just going to interrupt before going to the second half of the podcast, this podcast episode, just to remind you guys, we have a, a Patreon page, which you can find at patreon.com forward slash The Wire Stripped, or go to Patreon and type in The Wire Stripped, and it'll bring our page up. 
Yes, uh, and uh, what you get there is you get, uh, there's various different tiers, but you can get access to Patreon-only polls, which help to um, shape the future content of the show. Uh, you can get all uh, the episodes of The Wire Stripped ad-free. You can get a shout-out. Uh, but you can also get full-length, exclusive interviews with the cast members. So all the little snippets that you hear in the show, we've mm-hmm. got the full-length interviews that you can listen to at your leisure. Uh, Chris Bauer uh, is is up there at the moment who played uh, Frank Sabotka uh, with many more to come. And you'll also get the opportunity uh, at the top tier to ask questions to the Wire cast and crew for future interviews. And that's a great thing. As we record episodes, uh, seasons four and five, we'll reach out to you guys first. If you have any questions that you want to ask the cast or the crew or the producers, then you get first priority dibs on doing so. And also, you patron guys get premium access to our bonus. You get the re-up first before anyone else does. And that's at patreon.com forward slash the wire stripped. And we should say that money for this that we raise as a patron goes towards the Ella Thompson Fund, which is a charity that's supported by The Wire, cast, crew and production, and also helps to support the podcast to make sure we get these out more often to you and there's no massive wait in between <laughs> each each season. What are you talking about? What, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Let's go to the politics. Dave, what do you have for the politics? Over on the politics desk. <laughs> Well, uh, Karketi and Valchek have a little bit of a meeting. And yeah. It's uh, nice to see Valchek back. Nice to see Valchek back. Um, browning his nose. Yeah. Yeah. Karketi. <laughs> there's, there's an interesting sort of, um, there's a sort of an easy rapport between these two that's sort of implied in that, like, Karketi's got his feet up on the desk and he's reading the newspaper. You can kind of sense that, I guess, I guess as, you know, um, they keep referencing how, uh, because of Car- Carcetti's white uh, in in this district, you know it's a largely black district. Yeah. Uh, you know he can't really get ahead. You know councilman's kind of as good as he's going to get. And I think Valchek's in a kind of a similar position. It doesn't almost. feel he can climb anymore. Yeah, as in they, in a way, in ways they are the minority in this sort of district in, yeah. in terms of their sort of reach of power. So they've probably may- maybe banded together, or they or they have similar. Um, family ties or whatever. I kind of felt that the fact that Karketi had his feet up on Valtek's desk was like he didn't really see Valtek. I thought he kind of saw Valtek as a necessary kind of annoying nuisance. Oh, yeah, maybe. Um, Almost like a uh, sign of disrespect. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, yeah. he, he didn't really pay attention to him. It was just kind of like, yeah, I know this, mate. Yeah. I know I know what you're talking about. Just set up this meeting. Yeah. Check. You're yeah. here to do what I want you to do and, you know, off you go. Valchek um, was very into him. He was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I said, brown nosing. Uh, so we get, you know, he sets up the meeting with Burrell for, um, I think Karketi has made his point in the last episode, yeah. so Burrell's ready to talk. Uh, and he basically, you know, he's damned if he does, damned if he doesn't. So Burrell's willing to 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 play his game. And so Karketi asks him, what do you need? Yeah, and he says, we need, we need all our vehicles back and running. Yeah, and he gets it done. Which is fair enough, actually. Yeah. Um, which is... To me, it seems like this is a relationship actually that could that could kind of work. Maybe. Yeah. It shows us that Karketi is somebody who can, who has influence in the right places and yeah. is able to get things done under the radar yeah. and is helping. To you know, to what end and, and when is he going to ask for a favour and pull some levers? We don't know. But this is, you know, we're getting a very good sense of A, how politics works and B, how good Karketi is at it. This is almost like um, Nulti. He's doing stuff... But for what reasons? What reasons is he doing those things? Yeah, 
Yeah. Karketi certainly has his own agenda, yeah. which has not been revealed yet. One of the most important things about meeting the actual politicians in season three, uh, yeah, again, like you say, on a on a small, low-level politicians, but still politicians, still people with aspirations to be high-level politicians. This is the voice of Dave Pickering. He's a podcaster and a huge fan of The Wire. One of the great things about meeting those people is that you see that they're just another gang. They're just another kind of like we've we've and as we've seen from season one and season two, gang doesn't have to mean a bad thing. There are really lovely people in every group within the wire, but it's 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 a, it's another group of people with who are m- maneuvering around power. Another great performance from a, an actor from this part of the world. Uh, how you know really kind of like bringing that kind of I think that we see that quite a lot. We see kind of like outsider performances whereby people bring interesting dynamics to to roles because they're si- they've had to look at what it is to be american to play that role and the wire in a deep sense is what it's like is about what it's like to be american i tell you during this whole process from the very beginning of this show until the end every time that i would read or hear news about law enforcement or community involvement with law enforcement, I said, I understand it better now. This is the voice of Commissioner Burrell himself, Frankie Faison. I know exactly what they're going through, and what you read and what you hear is not necessarily the truth about what is really going on. You're talking about the, the economics of a, of, a, of a law enforcement. Do you know they have to have cars and Cars have to be fine-tuned and ready to roll. They have to have equipment. They have to have all kinds of tools to offset the bad guys. And if you don't have the money to buy them, then you're sort of like a a raggedy, raggedy unit. And we go back to the Comstat again. Oh, (laughs) this is the one. This is Rawls uh, pulls out. All the stops. Go on. Here. Oh, my God. It's just awful, isn't it? So this Major Taylor seems to be the one that takes the full oh. the full brunt. He's just stood at the top of this parapet, pulpit maybe, um, and he, Rawls just knows everything about what he doesn't know. Yeah. And Don't bother looking, I'll tell yeah. you. <laughs> it's the worst nightmare. Worst nightmare imaginable. Yeah. Where you're, like, he's basically pre-prepared this, you know, absolute takedown of, of, of his staff member. You know, because he, like, nobody knows these stats off the top of their head, but Rawls has prepared them in his own head. He knows which questions he's going to ask. Oh. That's the thing. You, you cannot win. If Taylor knew those stats, then Rawls has got 15 more questions that he knows the answers for yeah. already, that which Taylor cannot possibly know the answers to. Either way, Taylor's going down. And the only, I don't know how Taylor can go out of it. Taylor's an example. He's made an example of yeah. it. And it's, it's theatre. Yeah. You know, Rawls is doing this as theatre. It's inspiring fear in everybody else. It certainly inspired fear in me and I'd, I'd imagine all the all the viewers. It's it's awful to watch, It's <laughs> but also you can't tear yourself away from it. It's just like, it's absolute nightmare stuff. Major, how many people under your command? 278, sir. 278. And how many felony arrests they make last month? Don't bother. You made 16. Six... In a month. Same time period, how many handguns you pick up? All shifts, all sectors. Once again, don't bother. The answer is none. None. You had four bodies last night. In how many hours? 
Shut the fucking book. How many hours? Seven. Try five. Tell me about this kid. I believe his name's James. James Tony. When's the last time he was arrested? With who? Where's he sling? How about this guy? Or him? Or him? You know what? You got four bodies all within two blocks of each other, and you can't even start to connect the fucking dots. You got eight hours to get a grip on this mess, and you're done. You hear me? Done. Okay. Let's go to the alternative epigraph. A reminder, this is our uh, our sort of the line from the show that we think would make a nice alternate epigraph yeah. at the start of the show. Kobe, what do you got? I've got, um, it's from Poot. So, uh, y'all watch movies? <laughs> <laughs> this is his, like, abject disbelief that Herc and Carver are there at the cinema, just the same as them, watching, albeit different films. I get the impression that Herc and, like, Herc and Carver are watching like the latest Krzysztof Kozlowski film or Pavel Pavlovsky film <laughs> yeah. because they're, their girlfriend's one in it but Herc and Carver watching the latest like Michael Bay yeah <laughs> it's probably, it was definitely a Transformers was there, no there weren't Transformers movies back I don't in know, 2000 I don't know but it's that kind of nonsense let's figure out okay alright everyone let's figure out it was 2003 right what movies were Herc and Carver going to and what movies were Bodie and Pete going to let's, let's, let's get some suggestions let's get some going. suggestions down <laughs> And that was episode two of season three of The Wire, All Due Respect. Next episode is called Dead Soldiers. Yes, uh, thank you for listening to us this week. Uh, if you want to contact us, uh, then you can message us at producers at thewirestripped.com uh, or reach us on any of our social media pages uh, at thewirestripped. Yeah, and the wire stripped. Um, thank you very much to Sam and Martin from the Song by Song podcast for the, the theme tune that you can hear right now. Uh, thank you to Simon Devro, uh, aka at Devs Noodles, uh, who made our lovely season three artwork. Obi Joshua has been an amazing support for us uh, on the production side and researching. And Ben Williams, who's helped us out with the editing this year. And of course, Tom Wally, series producer and editor. Thank you very much, sir. See you next week. <laughs> I don't know I don't know why I just saluted it's a podcast. <laughs> <laughs>